Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single depiction of the Hecatonkeres. Today's episode combines elements from a number of Greek legends and stories for dramatic effect. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm Vanessa Richardson. This episode is part of our summer solstice takeover. Over the next two weeks, we'll be digging into the myths and legends of the stars. Check out Mythical Monsters, Superstitions, and Mythology for more of the special. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we're delving into the story of the 50-headed, 100-handed giants known as the Hecatonkeres. We've discussed their backstory on our show Mythology, so head there for our episodes on the Titanomachy, Zeus, and Cronus. But this show is about monsters and the people who either slay them or are slayed. So we're telling another bloody tale about the beasts and a boy who finds himself at their mercy. Coming up, we meet a reluctant hero on a quest for the tomb of the Hecatonkeres. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is said that Gaia, the earth goddess, and Uranus, the god of the sky, had 18 children. In ancient Greek mythology, many gods and goddesses are not just magical individuals, but fundamental aspects of reality. The Greek poet Hesiod called Uranus an ever-enduring living place for the gods, and so his children were planets unto themselves. Twelve of them were the Titans, Three more were the Cyclops, one-eyed monsters similar to those who would later fight Odysseus. 
And yet three more were the strangest of all, the Hecatonkeries, three brothers with 50 heads and 100 arms. They were named Cotus, Briarius, and Gyges. It's hard to imagine what beings with that many heads and arms might actually have looked like. Of course, through a modern lens, we understand that having 50 heads would have given them 50 brains, which means the Hecatonkeries were in fact 150 people rather than three. But to the ancient Greeks, the Hecatonkeries' 50 heads were just proof of their strength, their stature, and the threat they'd pose if they were ever awakened. It was a cloudless night, and Julian Selos could see the constellation Aries perfectly. He could even see distant Uranus, the father of the universe. Both he and his father had been born under these stars at just this time of year. He wondered if it was as the old woman said, that such things influenced who you are. Emperor Basil and the Pope said that God decided your fate, not the stars. Julian wasn't so sure. The world was scary, and it made more sense to think that humans lived at the mercy of many uncaring gods rather than a single compassionate one. Julian knew his fears were childish. After all, he was 11 years old, practically a man who would soon have to take a wife. However, his father Ignatius doubted that he was ready for this rite of passage. Julian was meek, scrawny, and cowardly. He worried about getting bitten by a spider, getting struck by lightning, or getting the plague. He was especially afraid of earthquakes, so much so that he'd refused to move with his mother to Athens after she left his father. He'd read that there were far fewer earthquakes in Constantinople, so that was where he stayed. It seemed like a poor choice now, as many believed his father had gone mad. Ignatius had wasted his fortune on harebrained treasure hunts throughout the Mediterranean. He'd gone from a member of the empire's honestiores, the elite, to a humilior, a working man. Although the only work he really did was hang around taverns and universities, keeping an ear out for tips as to the location of the next treasure. They now lived in a mud-brick hut outside of town. It was dirty and smelly, nothing like their city villa, and the bugs were relentless. The only thing Julian liked about his home was that at night, he got a crystal clear view of the stars. Suddenly, he heard a voice from the house. Julian, where are you? His father was home. Julian got up from the grass and made his way towards the house. Inside was a familiar sight, his father digging through the piles of scrolls he kept on the floor. This library of Greek texts was the only valuable thing they had left. His father looked up. Ah, there you are. Make yourself useful and help me find Argonautica. I know it's here somewhere. Julian groaned, but obeyed. He knew exactly where it was. He'd read these scrolls about heroes and gods many times, and the story of Jason and his Argonauts was one of his favorites. He found the scroll and handed it to his father. Ignatius was pleased, but flustered. Aha! 
Good work, my boy. Now to find stanza 1165. Julian was again annoyed. He took the scroll back and easily found the stanza his father was looking for. Then, at his father's anxious gesturing, he began to read. But when, in their eagerness to reach the mainland of Mysia, they were passing within sight of the mouth of the Rindicus and the great tomb of Aegean, a short distance beyond Phrygia then, as Heracles was heaving up furrows in the rough swell, he broke his oar in the middle. Ignatius clasped his hands in delight. There it is, right there. The old man was right. Julian was confused. What's so interesting about that? Ignatius grabbed his son's arm and sat him down at their table. I met an Israelite treasure hunter in town today. He came across a scroll about the legend of Aegean, the oldest and strongest of the Hecatonchores. He says it was written by Homer himself, and I believe it is authentic. Julian raised a doubtful eyebrow. Haven't we read about this before? Wasn't there some scroll by Apollonius? Ignatius scoffed. Those later writers got it wrong. Tomb of Aegean has come to commonly refer to the ocean itself, the body of water where Poseidon slew the 50-headed giant. But this scroll says it isn't just an ocean, it's an actual god's tomb. It even gives us his true name, the name the gods called him. Briarius. Julian watched his father wipe sweat from his brow. He didn't know what to make of this. His father was a pagan who converted to Christianity, like most citizens of the Eastern Roman Empire. He asked, I thought you didn't believe in the old gods. Well, of course I don't, said Ignatius. I'm sure Aegean was just a powerful king who ruled over the known ocean. Still... Who knows what riches await inside his tomb? So this was another harebrained scheme. Julian was even more upset when his father revealed he'd already used the last of their funds to hire a crew to take them across the Propontis to the tomb. Ignatius insisted, it won't even take a day. This was likely true. The Propontis, the small sea before the larger inhospitable sea, could be crossed in some directions in less than a day. Still, Julian had a bad feeling about this. But then again, he had a bad feeling about everything. They set sail the next day, and it didn't take long before Julian's stomach was roiling. He was hanging over the railing and throwing up into the sea. But then he considered that if a storm came, he'd be much safer now. He'd also heard stingrays could jump up and attack you on the deck, so he hurried downstairs. Once there, he limped past his father's hammock. Ignatius grinned. Not faring well, little sailor? Fear not, we'll be at the tomb within an hour. Julian's curiosity peaked at the mention of the tomb. He still didn't believe in it. How is it that such a fabled location could be so close? Ignatius explained, its entrance is in a cove, unremarkable to anyone passing by. Once there, we will have to dive below the surface and find the cave's entrance. Julian didn't like this one bit. 
Would he be able to hold his breath long enough to find his way into the cave? How was he supposed to keep his eyes open in the stinging salt water? What if there were sharks or other predators? He tried to use his knowledge to talk his father out of this foolishness. Father, I've read all the stories about the children of Gaia and Uranus. None of them say much at all about the Hecatonchores. They only agree that Uranus thought they were abominations and sent them to Tartarus. Some say they fought with Zeus when he overthrew the Titans. Others say they fought against him. You heard Poseidon killed the oldest one, Aegean, and buried him at the mouth of the Rindicus River? Well, Homer disagrees. He says Aegean can't be killed, and even Zeus feared him. Maybe this tomb is better left alone. Julian felt like he'd managed a fairly ominous tone, but when he was done, Ignatius burst out laughing. There's only one god, boy. This tomb exists, but it doesn't house a monster. And if it ever did, the thing is long dead. Julian heard a horn blast from above. They were in sight of land. This treasure hunt was happening, whether he liked it or not. Coming up, Julian and his companions find the tomb. Hi, listeners. It's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads, and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own. Or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Julian thought the coast of Mischia was unremarkable, just the usual beaches, rocks, and green hills that you could find throughout Greece. But this only made the boy worry that something sinister was hidden beneath the innocent-looking surface, especially since his father's crew was looking for the tomb of the mythical Hecatonchores. 
they made their way through a jungle full of all sorts of horrible things that made Julian worry. There were mosquitoes, snakes, and he even thought he heard a lion. But somehow they managed to arrive at the cove detailed in the lost Homeric scroll without any major disasters. When it was time to dive, Julian was scared, but a few sailors went first. A few minutes later, one swam down and back up and confirmed that there was indeed a cave underwater. Still, Julian didn't know if he could handle the swim, but his father Ignatius took him by the shoulder. I understand your fear, Julian, but it's only a short swim. Hold your nose with one hand and paddle with the other. I'll be right behind you. Despite his father's manic nature, Julian was reassured. It was times like these when he remembered that he hadn't stayed with his father just to avoid quakes. He hadn't moved to Athens because his mother always made him feel silly about his fears, while Ignatius, despite his grumbling, accepted them. So he grabbed his father's hand and dove down with him. They paddled and paddled, their lungs burning, before they finally emerged inside a cave. Julian sputtered and climbed onto the cold stone. He looked up to see the others had lit torches. Beyond them, in the darkness, was a giant, gray, terrifying face. Julian screamed and nearly dove back into the water, but Ignatius walked toward the face and held his torch up to it. Calm yourself, Julian. It is but an edifice, and it marks our arrival at the fabled tomb of Aegean. Julian was concerned for his father's safety. Don't get too close, father. There could be spikes. Ignatius waved him off and asked, a strange bit of writing there. Is it Greek? Julian shook his head. Not any Greek that I've ever seen. Ignatius reached into his satchel for the Homeric scroll. Perhaps there's some clue here. It says, Woe to they who encounter the Hecatonchores, but woe most of all to those who encounter their leader, the Titan Briarius, first and worst of Gaia's children. Suddenly, the whole cavern shook. Julian's stomach flipped. It was an earthquake, his worst fear realized. He ran forward and clutched his father, but rather than collapse, the cavern held together. The wall of faces, however, began to move. It shuddered and sank into the ground. Behind it was something new. At first, they thought it was another wall. All they could see was a strange brown, clay-like edifice. Ignatius reached out to touch it. There was another rumbling. The brown surface suddenly lifted upward, revealing a giant black eye. The second wall hadn't been a wall at all, but an eyelid. The cavern exploded as a massive beast rose from its hidden chamber. Julian, Ignatius, and some of the other sailors were lucky enough to land near the crumbling entrance and escape. As everything shook, 
Julian tried to pull his father to his feet. Come, father, we must get to the boat. But Ignatius didn't budge. Julian looked to his father's legs to see them crushed beneath mounds of rubble. Ignatius grabbed his hand. It seems some of your fears were well-founded, my son. Do not let my foolishness be the end of you. Do not let your fears be the end of you. Go, take the others and sail for safety. He turned to the sailors. I paid your wages, take my son and go. They grabbed Julian, dragging him kicking and screaming into the water. As their boat cut across the Propontis, Julian didn't feel even a hint of seasickness. He wasn't concerned about sinking or sharks. He knew the massive creature behind them was far more frightening than any of those things, and any hope of outpacing Aegean, the Hecatonchair, seemed preposterous. Julian looked back in horror to take in the beast for the first time. The water was the giant's tomb, but now he waded through it like a puddle. His legs were mountains, each hair on them bigger than a temple column. Julian saw some of the arms and heads on the creature's lower torso. The arms were muscular, and the faces were twisted and ancient. Everything else extended above the clouds. The giant bellowed and everyone clutched their ears. Those who didn't were struck deaf as blood sprayed from their ears. The giant lurched forward, crossing half of the Propontis in one step. Another step and it arrived on the shores of Constantinople. The water displaced by its massive footfalls rushed into the city. From the boat, Julian and the surviving sailors watched in horror as the tsunami destroyed its lower regions. They heard screams, lights were extinguished. Then the monster reached down with but a few of its larger arms, swiping at the city. In one scoop, the entire merchant's quarter was laid barren, a hole of dirt left in its place. Another scoop and the wealthy villas of the Honestiores were gone too. Julian's childhood home, everyone he had grown up with. He thought perhaps they should sail toward the city to try and rescue any survivors, but then he saw another of the giant's massive hands dip down from the clouds, slapping the palace of Emperor Basil off of the tallest hill in the city. In three swift motions, Aegean had destroyed the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. This was worse than any earthquake Julian could have imagined. He wanted to curl up into a ball and wish it all away. One sailor tugged at Julian's poncho. We must flee. We must sail through the Strait of Constantinople. Julian could say nothing. He only nodded in agreement. The sailors took their places, grabbing oars and pushing them away from the monster. No, not a monster, thought Julian. A god. They rowed faster than they ever had before. 
They made it to the peninsula on the other side of the Propontis in a few hours, but it did little to distance them from Aegean. He only looked slightly smaller as he loomed on the horizon. Other refugees had landed on the same beach. They ran about in a panic, watching for signs of movement from the god. It was stationary for now. Julian wondered what thoughts guided its movements. How did it experience the passage of time? Julian wandered through the wounded refugees, sobbing survivors whose loved ones had been wiped out in an instant. Julian felt a pang of guilt at the suffering his father's foolishness had unleashed, but he also couldn't help but feel protective of his slain loved one. How could Ignatius have ever known that the real Aegean was sleeping just hours away from their home? This was the first time Julian had been able to catch his breath and think of his father. He stifled a sob of his own as it hit him that Ignatius was truly gone. As he continued along the beach, he saw various preachers of Christian and pagan faiths. It is the apocalypse foretold in Revelation, screamed one. It is Ragnarok, screamed the other. A third yelled, we're being punished because of our false emperor. We should march up that hill and throw him into the sea. Julian flinched. Emperor Basil was alive, here on this beach? He turned to look up the hill. Sure enough, the red tents of the imperial leader could be seen above. This brought some relief, though it was soon replaced by fresh fear. Would the emperor know who had caused this disaster and come looking for him? Julian wanted to get his sailors and flee out of the empire and into the east, across the inhospitable sea. But then he felt another pang of emotion, guilt, somehow stronger than his fear. His father had unleashed that thing across the Propontis, the thing that stood and waited, plotting to decimate even more innocent beings. Julian wanted to run, but it was his duty to share what he knew and try to help his people. If the emperor wanted to kill him for that, then, well, right now death didn't sound so bad compared to the painful feelings that swelled inside of him. So Julian glanced back to the eerily still Aegean across the sea, then strode toward the emperor's tent to own up to his father's mistakes. Coming up, Julian writes his father's wrongs and faces a monster in battle. Now back to the story. Julian Selos had just wanted to stay home and read his scrolls, but his treasure-hunting father took them in search of the lost tomb of Aegean, the 50-headed giant. Instead of finding treasure, they'd awakened the beast. Now Julian's father was dead, and the monster was raging north across the empire. Julian and his crew fled to eastern shores, away from the rampage. Morning refugees lined the beach, but Julian stepped away from them to face Emperor Basil's Roman soldiers. They seemed intimidating in their brown leather armor and purple cloaks, but Julian could tell they were just as afraid as him and everyone else. 
they were so distracted that Julian was able to make it all the way to the mouth of the emperor's tent before anyone stopped him. The two guards standing watch crossed their spears over the entrance. One of them growled, how dare you approach the tent of the emperor, peasant? Julian's face flushed. I'm not just some peasant. My father awoke this beast using its true name. It's a Hecatonker, Briarius. As soon as Julian said this, an ear-splitting bellow ripped across the Propontis. They were lucky this time. They were far enough away to where the monster's wail didn't rupture anyone's eardrums. The soldiers stared at him, astonished. One said, this way, boy. Inside the tent, Emperor Basil I sat pensively while three advisors yammered. Julian had never seen him in person before. He was a real-life hero like Jason or Hercules. He'd protected the empire from the Abbasid Caliphate countless times, and he was even more magnificent than Julian could have imagined. One advisor turned to see the soldiers and Julian. He sneered in fury. You dare bring a peasant before the emperor? We will have you beheaded. The soldiers fell to their knees, though Julian was too awestruck to follow suit. Please forgive us, Senator, one pleaded. The boy, he says he knows what the monster is. He spoke its name and it bellowed in response. The advisors were shocked, but the emperor remained calm. He motioned Julian forward. His Greek sounded more beautiful than any Julian had ever heard. How can you know the beast's name, child? Is it not Satan, as my bishops suggest? Julian didn't know how to respond without contradicting his hero, but lives were in danger. He thought of what his father would do. Ignatius wasn't ever afraid to speak his mind, no matter who he was talking to. So he took a deep breath. I did not mean to contradict such learned men, but I was there when it happened. My father, Ignatius Selos, a treasure hunter, found the tomb of Aegean, one of Gaia's first children. It is said that he was slain by Poseidon, but this is not true. He is alive. We woke him. Preposterous, cried one senator. I recall talk of this Ignatius. He was a fool. He wasted his family's fortune on many such schemes. This boy is nearly a man. He should be taking a wife, not spewing nonsense. But Basil waved for him to be silent and asked, Tell me, child, who is this Aegean, one of Gaia's children? If I recall correctly, aren't we all in the eyes of pagans? And why does the beast not bellow now that we are repeating his name? Julian explained, the name I spoke outside to the guards was a different name, his true name, the name the gods called him. It is the name my father spoke to wake him, read from a lost Homeric scroll. The emperor considered this. This creature was said to have a hundred arms and fifty heads, yes? I think that fits the bill quite a bit better than the dragon described in Revelation, wouldn't you say, counselors? He asked the question pointedly. 
His advisors seemed annoyed, but they had to nod in assent. The emperor continued, We are besieged by a Hecatonchair, one of the oldest creatures in existence. Every minute that passes, another city is lost. May God, any God, help us. Child, what is your name? Julian gave his name. The emperor clasped his shoulder, just as his father used to. Julian Selos, you have given us the true identity of our enemy. The Empire thanks you. Now I must ask, how do we stop it? As luck would have it, Aegean headed north toward the land of the Bulgar people, rather than east toward Anatolia. This allowed time for Julian, the emperor, and his counselors to research ways to stop the god monster. Julian couldn't help but feel a certain amount of pride, if only his father could see him advising the emperor. This gave him confidence he had never known before. His anxieties melted away in the wake of the mission. They studied every ancient scroll they could find until they arrived at the following solution. The sea was often called Aegean's tomb, but it was also known by another name, Gaia's womb. Some believed that its deepest depths housed Tartarus, the prison in which many of the Titans, Gaia's children, were housed. The Propontis where Aegean had been sleeping was not very deep, but the inhospitable sea beyond it was much deeper. If they could draw Aegean there back to his mother's womb, perhaps he would sink back to Tartarus. Julian proposed an additional idea. This had to be attempted at night. In darkness, Uranus, Gaia's husband son, would be visible in the sky. She would be reminded of the threat he posed to her children and accept Aegean back into her womb. It was the best plan they had to go on, and so, within a fortnight, the entire Roman cavalry fanned out across the plains of the Bulgars, all the way to the sea, a distance of almost 200 miles. The skilled cavalry, led by their emperor Basil, unleashed their javelins at the monster. Julian stood on a boat with the Roman fleet, floating in the inhospitable sea. His stomach didn't churn. His fear of death was held at bay. He'd survived the monster once. He'd lost his father. He'd even faced and befriended the emperor himself. Everything terrible Julian had worried about for his whole life had already happened. He'd made it through alive, and now he was ready for more. On Julian's command, the Roman sailors began to call the monster's name, shouting, Briarius, Briarius. The soldiers and horses on the shore close to the monster were again struck deaf as it roared. It began to travel toward the sea, toward the sound of its name. Julian gulped at the sight of its legs and torso, at its swinging hands, wiping out scores of cavalry and farmland as it went. Soon, it was upon them. He plugged his ears with wax and wrapped them in cloth. Then, the sailors rowed out to sea. 
They kept calling the name, praying to whatever gods they could think of that they would survive. As the monsters stepped into the ocean, the waves bucked them back and forth. Some of the ships in the fleet capsized, but Julian's ship was lucky. They made it so far out that they could barely see land. Still, the monster was following. Many screamed and jumped overboard, assuming they were doomed. But Julian noticed something. He could see more of the monster than ever before. First, its torso, covered with dozens more screaming heads and swinging arms. Then its neck. And then, finally, its main massive head. His face was truly a wonder. Bigger than the sun, blotting out the moon. Teeth like mountains. Eyes like the abyss of the night sky. Julian could scarcely comprehend, but some part of him, the part that was more like his father than he knew, felt a strange joy at seeing this ancient beast come to life. The creature roared, but Julian would not be deterred. He stood defiant on the deck, cupping his hands around his mouth. He screamed one more time, directly at the monster, Briarius! The beast looked down and stepped toward the ship. In its eyes, Julian saw eons of history, anger and pain, fear too. But as suddenly as the eyes appeared, they jerked forward as Briarius fell into a sea deep enough to swallow him whole. Massive waves erupted, like watery claws pulling at the beast's frame. He struggled to stay afloat, but soon he slipped beneath the waves. Julian saw a blue flash of light beneath the waves as one last burst of water shot out over the deck. The Titan had returned to its mother's womb. Emperor Basil rebuilt his empire to be stronger than ever before. However, this was not done without some deception. Christianity was still relatively new in the Eastern Roman Empire. If it became known that it had nearly been destroyed by an ancient pagan god, this newfound religious uniformity might collapse. And so, Basil forbade all discussions or depiction of the monster. He blamed the destruction of Constantinople on the Abbasid Caliphate and was able to again unite his people in war against their neighbors. For his part in the monster's defeat, Julian was granted gold and safe passage to Athens. As he crossed the sea, he stepped out onto the ship's deck after nightfall. He looked back up at Ares and Uranus. He thought of his father, hoping he was up there somewhere, or at least in one of the better parts of the underworld. Legend said that only the bravest got to wander the Elysian fields. Julian was sure Ignatius qualified. Now Julian had to live a life that deserved the same. Once he landed in Athens, he was reunited with his mother and her family. The stunned woman cried out, my son, I am overjoyed to be reunited, and I mourn your father's murder at the hands of the caliphate. But I am surprised to see you here. I thought you feared the sea and Athens for its earthquakes. Julian hugged his mother and smiled. 
My fears still exist. I've simply chosen not to worry about them. He then took her by the hand and walked with her toward her villa. He had an important question to ask. Do you know any Athenian women looking for a husband? In ancient Greek myth, the children of Gaia and Uranus were more than just individuals with unique powers. They represented fundamental concepts. The Hecatonchires were associated with the rainstorms Greece often faced in the fall. This was thought to be the one time of year that Zeus let the beasts come up out of Tartarus. Aegean himself had a connection to the sea, as Tomb of Aegean was a phrase used to describe the ocean itself, where Poseidon supposedly slew the monster. As we saw in our story, there are many conflicting accounts of Aegean, also called Briarius. Classicist Robert L. Fowler traces this lineage in his Early Greek Mythography, Volume 2. He theorizes that Aegean may have actually been the very first sea god, overthrown by Poseidon in the same way that Zeus overthrew Kronos. It's possible to view these lines of succession as an artistic expression of how a single entity evolved in human consciousness over time. Very early pagan deities informed latter classical deities, so we might even view Aegean and Poseidon as one and the same. Poseidon was not only god of the sea, but of earthquakes too. The ancient Greeks believed the quakes resulted from him striking the ground with his trident. This association was likely due to the fact that earthquakes in Greece often led to new water springs, or even changes to large bodies of water like rivers and seas. So if the Hecatonchires were ancient sea gods, then we can see how, to the ancient Greeks, they represented the awesome transformative power of both the ocean and earthquakes. They were to be feared, but their power also sometimes benefited the ancient Greek people. They were the children of celestial bodies, as fundamental to life as the earth, the sky, and the stars. And just like the Zodiac we're discussing in our Solstice Takeover, the Hecatonchires had a hand, or a hundred, in shaping our destiny. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode in our Summer Solstice Takeover. Don't forget to check out the Mythology, Tales, and Superstitions feeds for other episodes relating to the stars. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Greg Castro, with writing assistance by Amin Osman and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Adriana Gomez. I'm Vanessa Richardson.
Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new ParCast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who are far more flawed than fatherly, ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify.